Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. There's a lot of talk these days about the affordability of homes in Canada, especially in its big cities. This talk has been part of my entire adult life, and I've been an adult for quite some time now. It's an important policy question in a society like ours that has always valued home ownership for the vast majority of people. My two guests today are Don Lauks and Leslie Volpe, and they have examined affordable housing by looking back at Toronto through the 19th century and into the First World War. Their book is Modest Hopes, Homes and Stories of Toronto Workers from the 1820s to the 1920s, and it's published by Dundurn Press. Don Lauks is an architect, an urban designer, and a cultural heritage planner. Leslie Volpe is a conservation practitioner and researcher with a passion for built heritage and history. I reached them both at their office in Toronto. Don and Leslie, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. Yes, it's it's amazing. witness to yesterday for this episode. Tell me what happened to the Jackson family in 1914. Well, so in 1914, Albert Jackson and his wife, Henrietta, purchased 213 Brunswick Avenue in the Bloor and Bathurst neighborhood. But let me back up to 1857 to help explain why the purchase of this small, single-story, two-bedroom cottage was uh, so significant. Albert Jackson was born in 1857 in the slave state of Delaware. He was the youngest of nine children. His father was a free man, but his mother was a slave. Uh, Two of Albert's eldest brothers were sold by their master. Albert's mother then learns of plans for four more of her children to be sold. They're heartbroken, obviously. Albert's father suffers a nervous breakdown and eventually dies, and Albert's mother mobilizes to leave. So Albert's mother, with seven of her remaining children, Albert is only a baby at this point, travel on the Underground Railroad to Toronto, one of the largest families to ever travel together. In Toronto, they eventually settle in the Ward neighborhood, which is the the infamous former slum that is in Toronto's downtown core, right, roughly where the Eaton Centre stands today. They rent a couple of rooms in the Ward, all seven of them and the mother. Anne finds work as a washerwoman, and Albert goes to school. Um, miraculously, though, the two eldest sons that were sold as slaves back in Delaware are re- reunited in Toronto, and they find Anne, and they find the seven siblings, and the whole family is reunited. Eventually, the Jacksons become, in the Ward neighborhood, a prominent black family. They live on Trawley, which is Bay Street, Chestnut, Edward, LaPlante, Elizabeth Street, Center Street, but each and every one of these houses is now gone. They work as laundry women, trades, high society barbers, and Albert, the youngest baby, becomes the first black postman in Toronto in 1881, which was surrounded by a ton of controversy. He was one of the first black public servants of the time. He earned a minimum of $1.25 in um, 1902, and by 1913, he was earning $3 a day. So, brings us to 1914. Albert, his wife Henrietta, now with their family of four sons, they purchase 213 Brunswick Avenue. It's their first property outside of the ward, the first house at Bathurst and Bloor. It was a remarkable achievement and accomplishment to move out of the ward neighborhood, come to Toronto on the Underground Railroad, buy their first home, and considering how they arrived here, it was remarkable. Four years later, 1918, Albert Jackson collapses after dinner and dies 
age 61. But 213 Brunswick, purchased in 1914, would go on to house uh, Albert Jackson's descendants, his nephew, his niece, several grandchildren, great-grandchildren. It was the first of many homes that the Jacksons would own and continue to own in the Bathurst and Bloor neighborhood. It is the only one of these houses that remain that from Albert Jackson's uh, time here in Toronto. And it's why we chose this cottage to feature in the book, just to show how important these cottages were in nurturing the successful lives in Toronto. These homes are now extraordinarily rare. Don, what kind of housing are we talking about here? There's different types. Uh, what After we did, we walked and biked and drove through that's part of the city. We basically reduced it to, to five kinds, roughly five kinds of housing. If you will, I'll, I'll describe them quickly. The, the, the smallest one is a one-story cottage, about 20 feet by 24 feet, um, four to 500 square feet foot altogether. It would consist of a parlor, um, a kitchen, and maybe one or two bedrooms, and that was it. The story and a half cottage was a little larger. There was an attic, and um, uh, the, the gable over the door had a window in it, and uh, there was a steep stair in the hallway, and there might be, you know, sleeping loft up there for the kids. And then this moved into a two-story, um, what we call a mansard, which is that French slope roof, um, and known as a bay and gable. And you see them everywhere. Yorkville's full of them, and, and you can still see them scattered out through the downtown. And these were about, they're narrower, 14 feet by 36 feet deep, and um, with a parlor, dining room, kitchen, and then upstairs there would be one or two bedrooms. Um, these evolved into a larger one, which we ended up calling the tower form or gable dormer, where the ground floor diner parlor had a bay projecting out. This bay continued upwards into the second floor as a tower and um, created more space that way. So you might get almost 900 to 1,000 square feet. And then the last one was a terrace house, which is a, a British type of house, which is a series of row houses, two or three stories. Um, and they were, again, 16 feet wide, 8 to 18 feet, 1,200 to 1,300 square feet, a flat roof behind a decorative cornice. Um, and sometimes a third floor was added, but very efficient use of space and very narrow. Now, are any of these homes typically Torontonian or were they borrowed, you know, from North America? You, you mentioned the terrace housing from, from, from Britain. Is there, a, is there a Toronto style? <laughs> Um, no, Toronto was a colonial capital, and the workmen who built these houses built what they knew, and what they knew was what they had learned back home. There was a, uh, a periodical called the uh, Canada Farmer magazine, and in the middle of the 1800s, 1856 to be exact, they published two plans uh, for cottages. Uh, one was known as the cheap farmhouse, and the other was the small Gothic cottage. And many of the of the workers' housing that, and cottages that we saw and have chronicled in the book are based on those designs. They were built in a, a number of ways. Developers would build them. Uh, factory owners would build them so that their workers would have a place to live and it would be another source of income. And occasionally, a worker would be able to buy a piece of land and erect at, at one end of it a shanty to live in while he built his modest hope himself. 
Leslie, where were these homes located and how many of them still stand? Well, you know, all throughout Toronto, uh, for every Rosedale mansion, uh, there were hundreds of these workers' cottages. In fact, Toronto was once called the city of cottages. So for every Baldwin and Goodrum, names that we're more familiar with, there were hundreds of O'Rourke's, O'Connor's, Tracy's, Ferguson's, Buckman's, Moore's, Chow's, and Jackson's. Um, and as Don was just saying, um, factory owners in Toronto, such as the Goodrums, built um, workers' cottages as a source of income, built close to their distillery um, to reduce uh, travel time for their, their workers. There were some in the West End, like the Garrison Common or Robinson Cottages, which were built by um, a real estate developer in 1859 named James Lucan Robinson. And there was workers' cottages in the in the East End by Don Jail, just south of the jail on Monroe and Hamilton Streets that were built for the, the jail workers. Um, and, and as Don was just saying as well, many were built by owners who found cheap land and finding they found local contractors and family to help them build their small homes, taking inspiration from so many that were built around them. And, and yes, many of them still stand, but thousands more of them have been torn down. They were once all in the downtown core, all around Cherry Street, the Eaton Center, the waterfront. If you, if you look at somewhere like Cabbage Town today, there was whole neighborhoods all over the city, just like Cabbage Town in the downtown core that are gone. Well, I, that's what makes your book so important, uh, Don and Leslie. It's, I mean, I live in Toronto, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I, there are some neighborhoods that I, I'm aware of, but even at that, I, I found your book to be an invaluable guide to, to actually be able to to see what a, a worker's cottage, so to speak, would look like, and to actually spot them on the street. It's it's a really quite a helpful helpful uh, uh, instrument to have in hand. Uh, but Leslie, you mentioned you mentioned the fact that a lot of these things have been torn down. Uh, these homes do stand on incredibly valuable lands. Are they being protected? I mean, the, the, the land on these is millions of dollars. Uh, are they being protected? Is there something we could do to protect them better? Today, you'll find them in many inner city neighborhoods like Leslieville, Riverside, The Junction, Corktown, um, Ossington, Bathurst and Bloor. Um, and today, they, you know, these are neighborhoods which have million dollar homes. And some of these million dollar homes are in fact workers' cottages. But yet they're, they're small size, they're lowly status, they're crowded onto streets, have made them vulnerable to neglect and demolition. Um, they're often replaced by topped up or knocked down and replaced with much more, uh, modern homes and commercial developments. And you know their disappearance is like the erasing of our, of our history. And our plan with this book was to bring value to the houses by learning more about the stories and the people who once lived there. The story and the house as a collective the value of them and appreciation rises. But it's a story that has to be appreciated. And when you're looking at a tiny house on a million dollar lot, um, I'm sure that makes the city planners just insane. It's a, it's an enormous controversy, but Don, I want to come back to you as an architect. Um, how have these homes evolved over the hundred years that you cover in your book? Is there, is there from an architectural perspective, how do we chronicle that evolution? A lot of it, if you take the basic module of the house and styles changed, decorative styles changed and evolved. And so you can see in some of the detailing, some of the, the fretwork on the eaves, um, some of the brickwork, 
using like two color bricks, yellow or buff bricks as they're called, and red brick to uh, sort of uh, accent a curved window or an entranceway where they, you know, introduced transom windows or stained glass. And so the interesting thing is that you, you can see sort of the stylistic change of sort of the decorative elements, but the basic house remained pretty basic. <laughs> and so when you're looking at them, um, you can almost, knowing something about the styles and and the various architectural, you know, attributes, you can tell probably when they were built. But I think what I find so interesting about them is that these references are on the front, usually, street side, public statements about hope and status. And, uh, and so when you start reading them that way, it becomes a very interesting story about ambition and, and hope. Indeed. So as the 19th century evolves, a worker would invest in, in, in improving the windows, improving the various features on the facade? The money went on the front? Well, no, they would, or they would add to the back, you know. An extra bedroom? <laughs> right. Chop the roof off and add a second floor. Yeah. So, I mean, so there's a constant, there's a constant investment then. There's a, there's a pride of ownership, and there's a constant investment in improving the homes all through the 19th century. Mm -hmm. Leslie, who can afford these houses? If you if you look at these small workers' cottages through today's lens, like their small size or close proximity, it, it might make us think that they were just small, cheap, disposable housing. But it's all it's all relative. Our book focuses on the the range of immigrant groups, and it describes who they were, where they came from, the housing conditions they left behind, and what life was like for these newcomers when they first arrived in Toronto, often with with nothing, and. Our hope is it helps readers appreciate the enormity and the scale of the achievements of many that were able to purchase or rent or live in a, a modest hope. So whether they were escaping slavery, the potato famine, Scottish land clearances, uh, pogroms in Romania, or the, the abject poverty of the Industrial Revolution in England, to be able to afford a home once arriving in Toronto with almost nothing was the result of, um, of an unbelievable effort and, and faith in the future. So it's fair to say that for these, for the owners of these homes, who presumably had to get some sort of mortgage, who would literally pay for this for the rest of their lives, this the, this architecture represented a lot more than just architecture, wasn't it? It's 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 the investment of their hopes, as you're saying earlier. And often they would have you know four kids in a bedroom, and and the kids would like everyone would be contributing to the family income. It wouldn't just be the mother and father; it would be the mother and the father and the teenager and the the children as soon as they could work and the grandparents. I mean, everybody contributed to the the investment of the of the home they had purchased. So we've established that these are still today modest structures, but what do they represent in terms of heritage? What, what do they? Why should we preserve these homes? Heritage is is sort of um, a flexible term, and it, it, to me, I think to most people it means sort of history. Um, but he heritage also can mean um, values and um, references to the past and connection. And I often think of like the juxtaposition, you know, of old and new on a street adds richness to the environment, and so. These as heritage resources, I mean, do many things. And, and as you know, we said earlier, they represent, you know, amazing levels of hope and, and 
perseverance and, and care, but they also represent, you know, um, the people who built this town and built this city. And it's so easy to forget that. Um, and this, they're the stories that haven't been told. So each of these houses to me now, and it's, it's obsessive at one almost, <laughs> is each of these houses, I want to know who lived there and what did they do? And what, what, how did they contribute to the city that we live in today? Um, and so fr from that sense, the, the resource is a reminder of, of this kind of hope and perseverance. And I think that's really important. I see it as a rootedness, whether, whether it's a grand old building. Uh, you know, we have lots of banks in Toronto, for example. The, there's a wonderful terms you guys use, uh, temple banks. Is that the right word? <laughs> uh, you know, for, 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 well, you, you know, you have the Bank of Commerce and you have these awesome columns and they really were temples. And so I look at those homes and I, and I do think of a certain sense of rootedness. But when I see a small cottage, I also think of, uh, like you, I also think of the, 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 the people who lived there, the people who built it, the people who invested their hopes in it. And I think it's a wonderful mix to have. And, and, and we, but we all know that we've torn down an awful lot of this heritage, haven't we? We've lost so much. I mean, the analogy I use um, so often to my students is our heritage is like pages of the book of the story of Toronto, and you tear them down, you're ripping pages out of the book, and then it, it becomes unreadable, and we lose it. I, I agree. Well, okay, let's go back to the the, the reading part because this is a book, Leslie. I mean, I've got to ask you. I've got to ask you the the classic Champlain Society question. What are the sources? What were the sources for the writing of this book? How did you unpack the Jackson family? What are your sources? Well, most importantly, people. We spoke to uh, grandchildren, great grandchildren, great nieces, step grandfathers. Librarians, historians, homeowners, um, we handed out flyers to gather stories. We, we toured homes. We snuck into open houses. <laughs> <laughs> we really did. Uh, we looked inside as many modest hopes that would have us. Um, and then from our archival perspective, we researched um, archival photographs, archival newspapers, books. A few favorites were um, Eric Arthur, Arlene Chan, Joanne Doucette, Bard Merville, Mark McGowan, uh, Carolyn Smarts Frost, journals, Canada census, Goad's insurance maps, and Toronto directories from the 1830s onwards. But I will say for the, the Jackson story, for example, we had amazing, incredible luck. We were able to speak to great grandchildren and, and children and, uh, and step um, daughters-in-laws and the, the man who now lives in the house. Like it, it, it was it was just it was like just kept unraveling and unraveling and we found out so much okay well, hold on now hold on now. i want I, I want to make sure i understand this you mean to tell me that you started writing this book literally walking the streets of toronto on your feet and said i like this house i wonder what the story is or is that what happened in the case of jackson or did you know the jackson family before the jackson family no it, that one um i i I found the nugget of that he was the first black postman. And then I just kept digging. We kept digging and digging and digging. Found the person that lives there now who connected us with the people who used to live there, who were the Jacksons. And I just kept getting bigger and bigger. Murray, Murray Buckman, though, who is one of the stories, is my um, step-grandfather-in-law. <laughs> so who is 90, 98, who is a, an actual record of 1920s, 1930s Toronto. Um, and so I can obviously speak to 
you know, Murray, but also his children, his grandchildren. Um, his house is still there, 208 Claremont Street. So there was various ways in which we found the stories, but a lot of it started with talking to people. Talking to people, looking at the really taking advantage of the people around you who had a story to tell and a story that you can actually tie to a, a pile of bricks. Yeah, yeah. Was there any story that actually started with you saying, hey, I like this house, I wonder what's behind it? Yes, Bright Street. Bright Street. So Bright, Bright Street is this amazing little street in Toronto in the East End. It's a curved street with two-story terraces, but right in the middle of the street is this tiny little one-story cottage smushed up between all these row houses. So I just, I wanted to find out when it was built, what the story was. And eventually I was connected to a woman named Anne O'Rourke who lived there. So you knocked on the door. No, this was all just through directories and just. Really? Yeah. Just picking away at the pieces. And then through ancestry.ca, I found her great, um, her great granddaughter-in-law. <laughs> who I've mentioned in the book, but we've mentioned in the book. And um, and she filled in so many more gaps that they were Irish um, potato famine, Irish immigrants. And yeah, so that, that started with, that's a cool house. <laughs> what is the story? And it's probably one of my favorite stories. That's a wonderful story. And your enthusiasm for the house shines through in your book. What makes this book so special for you? What What, what made it so important for you to write this? I've always appreciated the past, um, as and as an architect, I always saw the opportunity that uh, buildings offered as they changed use and as evolved. And so, a lot of my practice has always been the reuse of heritage of buildings, which some were heritage, some were not. And what makes these so valuable is that they epitomize the. The, uh, the opportunity of reuse. Like you don't have to tear it down. You don't have to build too big. They were sustainable environmentally when they were built. They're still sustainable environmentally today. We should honor them for that. And as well, we should honor them for the history and the heritage that they encouraged. Like lives were fostered in, in that in that house, houses that did amazing things in this city. I mean, I, I could go on, but it's just the idea that they were the vessels, you know, that fostered the lives. And what's remarkable, Don, is that they did it without closets. <laughs> or clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Leslie, what brings you what brings you to the table on this? What 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 animates your passion for the built heritage? Well, same as Dawn, I started with an interest in the building itself. My my first house was a little tiny worker's cottage. Um, I, I've always loved them. I've just always been interested in them. But when I started to research my own house when I was living it, I just started to be obsessed with the <laughs> stories that came with these houses as their history is so long. Um, but for, for this book, when we started learning about the stories who, of the people who lived in these buildings, like there was, you know, a world famous rower who rode with Ned Hanlon or, uh, you know, men who died in the World War One and World War Two, potato famine survivors, escaped slaves, Toronto's first Chinese laundry owner. Yeah, yeah. I love that one. And, you know, the Bell of Whitby, a music teacher, a barber, a newspaper publisher. It, it just kept going. And like you just wanted to, it was the hook that you wanted to figure out who these people were and how the house as a vessel helped nurture their lives in their future. <laughs> Aside from the, uh, these worker cottages, uh, Leslie, do you have a favorite uh, heritage building in Toronto or in Canada for that matter? It will surprise you because it's the exact opposite, but 
the Dawn Jail. I I, <laughs> I love the Dawn Jail. It's it's um, that's hardly surprising. It's a beautiful building. <laughs> it's it's just not small or or modest, but it's um yeah. I just I love it, and I love the adaptive reuse that they've done with it that Bridgepoint has done. I I, I think it's it's a remarkable building. No, I agree with you. I think it's a great pick. What about you, Don? Your favorite uh, heritage building in Toronto or in Canada? Well, it, let's start in Canada. It's a stone, a uh, loyalist stone house, farmhouse, and it was moved to Upper Canada Village, and it's called the Lokes House. Oh. <laughs> and it's partly my favorite, and all my children, and we, I've dragged them there, nephews and nieces, <laughs> to see it. But in the city, you know, in the city of Toronto, I think one of my favorite is what's known as the uh, Guterum building or the flat iron building yeah um yeah it says so much it's a landmark in toronto and i always wonder how come it hasn't been demolished well it's been close very close but it's just the idea of, of taking that sharp pie-shaped lot and saying we're going to build something that's extraordinary and they did and it's still there Let's talk about today. I, I started this podcast by talking about affordable housing. Um, Donna, let me start with you. Do you have any policy advice to make housing more affordable today in Toronto for its workers? Over the t past 20 years, home ownership has averaged about 66% of adults. Are they destined to live in stamp-sized condominiums, or is there something else in the policy world that should be championed. What's your thought? I think to provide more affordable housing, we should be more creative from a planning architectural and urban design perspective. And what I mean by that is we should look at ways of intensifying the land that we have that's already serviced. By serviced, I mean it already has water, sewage, and power, right? And this could be parking lots, this could be laneway housing. This could be um, a rethinking of right-of-ways, road right-of-ways, reduction of, you know, um, and you can see it now with bike lanes, that there's ways we can reduce the roads. So we could, we could think of using that space also to uh, intensify. Um, but look, reusing, reuse building some of the warehousing, you know, uh, some of the industrial buildings, they could easily be repurposed. And if you, if you ever get an aerial view of the city, you see how underdeveloped it really is. You know, we don't have to build point towers, but we can do what's called, what we call gentle intensification across the city would make a, make a really big difference. So you're saying that the tools are at hand. They are. And this is the, the part that I think is, is, is what we're trying to get, you know, people to think about. Two things. One is let's use what we have. And small can be beautiful. And um, if, if we can, if the younger generation, I know that my uh, grown-up children are thinking that way, and I'm hoping a lot of other people too, are, that we don't have to build big monster homes. We could live comfortably as generations before us did in small, well-designed, sustainable environments. So you're saying that if our great-grandparents lived without closets, we can too? Exactly. <laughs> I think you're going to have a lot of trouble convincing a lot of young people of that, but it's always worth a try. Um, that the idea of, of small housing is not just today's condominiums, but it, but workers in the past did that also. Um, 
But it's, it's important that we find room for for the workers in our city. Otherwise, we condemn them to to long commutes, and we know that those can be um, quite literally. Uh, killer commutes maybe with the pandemic we're, we're, we're discovering new new lessons about this but we still need obviously uh the essential workers to do their jobs to be on site and and there needs to be housing in the city and not just for rich people who can afford it and what my point is that you're, you're talking about an issue that was that was prevalent in the 19th century and it's still with us today in the 21st century Leslie, do you do you have a clever solution in your in your policy solutions bag? You know, I, I don't. Um, there's a, one of my favorite quotes about this is is the greenest building is the ones is the one we already have, and I think what Don I would echo so much of what Don has just said that there's so much work we can do with adaptive reuse of buildings that are already there or laneway housing or just accepting that small is okay it, and i mean i murray buckman whose story we featured i remember one of my favorite quotes from him was we didn't think we were poor we had a house like it's we just need to reshape our thinking of, of big isn't better and and uh you know look how they do it in places like japan i mean very compact small housing it, it's it doesn't have to be a status symbol and it can still be comfortable and a pleasant place to live yeah, yeah. You can buy a wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy a wardrobe. I always say that we don't write enough about our built heritage, and I hope you both go back to your desks and write more, Don and Leslie. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. That was Don Lauks and Leslie Volpe, and their book is Modest Hopes, Homes and Stories of Toronto's Workers from the 1820s to the 1920s. It's published by Dundurn Press. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society, whose annual memberships make everything we do possible. Thank you. Thanks also to our growing list of sponsors, including the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholars book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. As a way for you, the listener, to support this podcast, please go to champlainsociety.ca to make a quick donation. The Champlain Society is a registered charity and will provide you with a tax receipt for any donation over $20. Any support goes a long way as the Champlain Society receives no government support for its operation, which always surprises people. And don't forget to support this podcast by telling all your friends in whatever way you prefer. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the middle of the fourth wave of the pandemic on October 6, 2021, by our producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>